I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. Emotional intelligence is the sine qua non of leadership. It is also those groups of non-cognitive skills and attributes that helps us navigate our lives. How do we need to develop these skills now in times of stress and uncertainty? So I'm delighted to welcome Stephanie Vermeulen, expert in emotional intelligence, focusing on women's issues and all other life skills. She's an author, she's a speaker, she's a facilitator, she's internationally renowned. And Steph, I'm so delighted to welcome you into our Thrive with Dr. D studio today. Thank you so much, Dr. D or Dori, and I really appreciate this. This is a great opportunity to talk about an important subject at the moment, uh, considering we are under lockdown and during COVID. Sure. So let's just start by, there are various definitions. I think there's a kind of thread of similarity, of course, between all of them, but your definition, what is emotional intelligence? I work with the biggest part of emotional intelligence is learning to manage oneself. And the second pillar of emotional intelligence is so that you can gain cooperation from other people. And when I started working with EQ or started reading actually Daniel Goldman's book in 1996 uh, was the first time it came out to South Africa. The thing that struck me most was it's probably the closest Western notion to the concept of Ubuntu because it's very clear with emotional intelligence is I can't survive or thrive on my own. I need other people, no matter how much of a loner I might be, no matter how independent I might operate or independently I might operate, I still need other people and I need to gain their cooperation just to support me. And all of us are the same. If you're in business and it's leadership, that having people support you or choosing to support you is one of the most important things that a, a leader will need because the other option is they can choose to sabotage you. So mm -hmm. it's about learning to manage myself. And lots of people think, well, that's the easy bit. The difficult bit is actually gaining co uh, people's cooperation. And it is seemingly the difficult bit, but because of the way I'm coming across. So I'm producing reactions in somebody else all the time. And if I'm aware of the reactions I'm producing, then I can change my approach to that person. Lots of people say, well, then it means you, you're not authentic, etc. We've got many, 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 many different ways or, or many different reactions. And one of the things that we often forget, particularly in business, is to use humor. And I think that uh, we have a lot of sense of humor failure at the moment under COVID because the conditions are affecting us so badly because it's completely out of our norm and we're plunged into the unknown. Sure. So, Steph, there are two big questions from what you've said that I want to ask. You have emphasized the way that we manage our reactions to other people, and therefore that would dictate the way that they relate to us as being very central and important. But you did say, I think, that it starts with you. So it would be, I mean, I'm thinking of emotional intelligence as being able to understand your emotions in some way, yourself. Yes. What triggers yes. them and why? which may yes. be the result of, of an, someone, but it could be a result of an event that you're interpreting in a particular way, which triggers a very either a usual or a idiosyncratic particular emotion that kind of gets triggered in you easily. And then yes. the second part of it is often how do you deal with those emotions intelligently? So what I want to ask you is that it seems to me that there needs to be, first of all, a focus on yourself, number one. And second of all, is it true to say that part of it is an integration of head and heart? Because we used to say before, don't make a decision, you're too emotional, you can't think straight. It's going to cloud your judgment. Now, let me ask you, is the current way of thinking of it is recognize your emotion and deal with them differently? That was yes. the first question. Let's talk about that first. So our emotions, now we know from science what emotions are. And emotions are the 
chemical messengers that run between the, or that run the messaging between our thinking brain and our body or our nervous system. And it's a two-way street. So we are receiving messages from the outside world and that could trigger us, or we could be thinking things internally that trigger us to the trigger emotion. So emotion is scientifically we would call these these chemical messengers, we would call them hormones that run then the, the traffic. What triggers us could be external or something that's internal. So if you pull a face that I go, oh, and I respond to because I have had somebody pull such a face of disapproving or whatever when I was growing up, that could trigger a reaction in me that has nothing to do with you. So I need to know what's my stuff and what's yours. If I'm triggering you in any way, and, and if you're, you're being triggered, then you react to me, then that's your stuff. So when we know what's my stuff and what's your stuff, we can then separate our reactions from internal triggers. We go, oh, that just triggered me. That's my stuff. I need to manage that. Or something that you did triggered me. And I can say to you, look, I'm uncomfortable with the way you're talking to me or your, the tone you're using, whatever it might be. But there's how you then choose to handle that is up to you. So it's this constant notion all the time of watching the reactions that are produced in me. Is it my stuff or is it something that's happening from external or is it your stuff that you are inflicting on me? Then I need to put a boundary in. So step that's kind of part of what I see as the desire to the desired outcome. What is mine? What gets triggered in me? Is it really mine? Or is yes. it how I'm interpreting it of what gets, it could be you, but it might not be you. It could be circumstance. It could yes. be just the environment that we're dealing in. But let me just um, ask you, I think that sometimes, and please argue with me, this process is difficult and it's much easier said than done, Steph. Because when you're in the moment, you're not going to stop necessarily Shout me down if I'm wrong. And say, so, okay, is this my stuff? Is this your stuff? Where is it coming from? Is it to do with a childhood memory? What is getting elicited in me? Certainly not immediately. Maybe when you understand what you're explaining to us now, you then become aware of the importance of being able to do that kind of differentiating. But at the time, especially times now, what people are going through, they get triggered easily. Yes. They don't even sometimes understand what the trigger is, but what they do understand is the emotion. Not understand, but feel. They experience an emotion which is sometimes overwhelming. Suddenly, not even they haven't even recognized the buildup because they could have denied the emotion. So they feel overwhelmed. They feel stressed. They feel scared they feel very much out of control. And my question is, do they, in those moments, with just the emotion in your face and in your heart and in your life at the moment, how do they deal with it then? Because there's, they might not be able to do the questioning that is necessary. Yes. And I think that one of the big things in terms of our emotions are Emotions are being called data. I've always called them messages so that they are sending us messages telling us the truth about what's happening in our lives. So they're sending us information. Now, when we become more self-aware, we start to notice the habits. Things that I am feeling habitually tend to make me respond in this particular way, good, bad, or indifferent. Once I start noticing what those patterns are, our behavior is actually quite predictable. Then I can get to what those triggers are. So this is all self-reflective work or self-awareness work. So that at the time, if you trigger me, for example, if I've done the work in the background, then I don't have to do that thinking right now. I can go, ah, it's that trigger because uh, I can feel it somewhere in oh, these triggers often or, or very often the big triggers cause a reaction that is physical. And whatever that physical reaction is, for example, my reaction to impatience starts in my stomach. I know that reaction. It's the only time that I feel that. It means I'm about to lose my temper <laughs> and in terms of the, the frustration. 
when I feel that I've trained myself to go, okay, what's your choice around this? And it's instantaneous. I mean, it happens in, literally in an instant. So it's about learning the self-awareness around one's habits and how they trigger our nervous system to produce certain physical feelings that we can use as almost like a, a, a warning light or a, a big bebop bebop if it's about to, if it's something that is going to be serious as in lose my temper completely. So this is all work we do behind the scenes so that when we are working with people, we can recognize these things in ourselves and then train ourselves to respond differently. Okay, so the emotional intelligence skills, because what I want to do is pull out the skills and give people some guidelines and tips of what they can do and how they can learn them and what the particular area of emotional intelligence is. So yes. I think that from what you're saying, first skill, self-awareness. First important thing, understand what that feeling is because probably you haven't had it before, to the point where you can recognize some very, very quick physiological responses that give you an idea of the emotional response, or they work in tandem. So yes. what would you think, because sometimes what I say is that the response, you feel the emotion, and then the response very often, especially if we're talking about in certain situations, leadership situations. I've done quite a lot of work with doctors in the front line over this. Mm -hmm. Situations where your image is quite important, where you can't allow yourself to kind of lose it or appear to be weak and inadequate. So for me, what I've seen is that the immediate response very often in a lot of people when you are triggered or begin to feel overwhelmed or out of control, is to attempt to douse down the feeling. It'll, it's, a, it's going to go away. Let me push it under the carpet. I'm stronger. That's the normal. What is happening to me? Now, I would like to know your response to that and whether that kind of response works. Because it's a really common default response. It is the most common default response is to ignore emotions completely because we have lost touch of what they were or what they represent. Daniel Goleman, who you mentioned earlier, talks about that emotions literally respond to, do I eat it or does it eat me? <laughs> Which is mm. where it comes from in the, the days when we were hunters and gatherers. So when we are feeling the responses now and if image is important and often it's inappropriate for us to lose our temper or to respond to anger in that way when we know what our triggers are in terms of anger so something for somebody might be if they're feeling disrespected it would then trigger their anger because anger is simply a message of i can't get my own way here so if somebody is disrespecting me i fear that i might not get my own way it could trigger an angry retaliative response so things that we can do is to engage your rational brain, most importantly. So the first thing, ah, I'm feeling that feeling. Let's say that it would be for me in my stomach. I'm feeling that feeling. Right, engage rational brain. What's triggering this? Ah, it's that. Okay, it's stuff that we recognize. What can I do about it? Ah, I could negotiate, for example. So engaging your rational brain is, is one of the key areas in terms of what can I do to change the situation? So instead of dousing down the emotion and hoping it will go away, that emotions that we ignore simply are like sort of children that we ignore. They get louder and they start acting out, etc. And one of the people that works with the nervous system says when our nervous system can't cope, it becomes overwhelmed, that's when it turns into behavior. We act it out then because we can't contain the feeling any longer. So things that we can do are simple things. Our grannies or our mothers always used to tell us to count to 10. That's a very good thing to do because it engages the rational brain. So we're not ignoring the emotion. We're going, I'm angry. Okay, if I count to 10, I'm engaging my rational brain. Something else we can also do is 
to calm our nervous system. The only control that we have really over our nervous system that is now agitated or afraid is deep breathing. And if you breathe, the, uh, the long out breath is actually what calms our nervous system. Because when we get angry, and physiologically when we get angry or are afraid, which are two big triggers for us as human beings, we start to breathe in a panicky way. And just by noticing our breath, also requires the rational brain to do so and then to control those long out breaths some of the practitioners who work with trauma even talk about just going Ooh, as you're breathing out if you can obviously if you're a doctor on the front line or a leader managing a team you can't stand in a, a team meeting <laughs> put you into the psychiatric ward indeed yeah. but you can do it on the quiet when nobody's noticing so it's to have these standard things that you do so standard responses that you've trained yourself whichever works for you counting to 10 what can i do about it telling yourself okay i'm angry now this is is i've breathe or control my temper etc through breathing so it's these standard habitual responses that we can develop that nobody else needs to know out there but we can just quietly practice instantaneously on ourselves to change the nature of our nervous system rather than douse or ignore the feeling Which because it will start acting out. Doesn't it doesn't work, work. no, okay. not at all. So what we said, which um, is, is, look, you have to own the story before you can define the ending. You know, in other words, in some of you, what you're saying is that a lean in has become a bit of a kind of a mm, tweet cliche, but you lean into the emotion and recognize it. You pick yes. up the physiological responses. You know what you're feeling. Then you find a way of stop, stop, yes. or at least slowing yes. down, either by breathing or by counting or in another way, seeing a stop sign yes. or whatever. That enables you to go into the rational brain. The more adult, less primitive, less hijacking yes. part of the brain. In that brain, you are able to uh, respond rather than just react. And yes. in that way, that kind of calms you down. So that's really useful in terms of what am I feeling? Maybe I know the trigger. I certainly know the feeling. And you have a strategy that you can use quite a lot. Most of the time when you practice it, it might work. When you're aware of it, it works. I can't say, but I do believe, and I'd like your a feeling that when it doesn't work and when people feel overwhelmed, it's because they've ignored all of this up to now and there's a kind of a build-up. And sometimes yes. this time can be the last time and the reaction isn't for this time. It's for all of the other times that you didn't want to have that response before. But as you say, your nervous system is overwhelmed and it is knocking on your door in a loud way that is going to burst it open and be heard. And it will burst out as behavior that may not get you the best response from somebody else. I think what's also really important to acknowledge is there are no bad emotions. That emotions make us feel bad because they're demanding that we respond to them. So I look at emotions as warning lights in a motor car that when our motor car is running smoothly and everything's fine, there's no need for a warning light to come on. That karma happy state is what we, that's what we call happiness, is that karma state of being content. When something is, something alerts us to, there's something that's wrong, I'm not quite comfortable here, an emotion will start. So emotion will start as a warning light. Now, even anger, anger's got a very bad rep, but anger is self-protective. If somebody is keeps treading on my toe and I keep putting a boundary in and they keep not hearing me about that boundary, then I'm going to eventually push them in some way. And that could be through losing my temper, voice, etc., to say it's enough already, really putting my foot down. So fear is life protective. Anger is, is protective in terms of other people. So if we look at even masses of people, we control masses of people through fear. If you make people fearful, they will be obedient. It's why school systems, etc., are geared towards making children obedient. If you want to start a revolution, tap into everybody's anger because that 
and forget them to act out in ways that they stop being fearful about even losing their lives when things get extreme, as we are seeing right now with the Black Lives Matter, etc. And these kind of protests where people have literally had enough. So when we are working with emotions, we need to know that there are no bad emotions. And you and I have, and all of us, have a right to every emotion that we're feeling because it's data and it's important data. When I ignore that data, that's when the build up, build up, build up, build up happens and something slight will trigger me and I may have a massive, massive, massive explosion because of the build up that you're talking about because I've tried to subdue the emotion for so long. So I mean, very often you hear about what the basic emotions are and then people have expanded them and expanded them and you get these wheels of emotion that have many emotions. They seem to be the basic emotions and then highlighted by degree, a mild kind of response to anger might be irritation. And a huge response to anger might be uncontrollable aggression, for instance. But really it's same sort of it's the same emotion i'd like to ask you what you believe the main emotions are you say there's no bad are they all messages they're all messages and they're all data so they're telling me something about my life that gives me a choice about how i can respond so for people who haven't trained themselves yet to notice their emotions if we just start with happy unhappy Then I notice when I'm unhappy and it's not you that's making me unhappy. My response is unhappy right now. What is that about? And then go to what the Americans do. The the next stage would be mad, bad, sad, or glad. And the mad being angry. Uh, The American angry is, is mad, bad, sad, or glad. So you start from there that there are sort of seven or eight categories, but shame is one of them. And when we feel shame, Shame is giving us the message that we think we are bad. If we feel guilt, for example, it's I've done something bad. But shame is when we're at our lowest, lowest ebb usually of feeling utterly ashamed about ourselves. And it's one of the hardest emotions. Now, these are also emotions that we learn, that we we learned shame, we learned guilt, because if we were ostracized by a community, then we couldn't survive. So shame is something that is very, very hard for us to deal with. So to mad, bad, sad, or glad, I would add the shame. But shame is something that we've learned when we start to break social contracts, for example. So me being you, you you said in the beginning that I'm, I'm known to be outspoken. And one has to be, but it still can easily then tap into for people who are outspoken when the social bullies do that bullying of you're not okay because you think this, because you think outside of the norm, shame will silence us too. So shame and fear will silence us. So that's work we have to do. And we have to talk about what's going on is shameful. My response to that is not shameful. So there are people who speak out against racism, sexism, etc., and who are absolutely slated by conservatives If you look at the word conservative, my husband always says that it's about wanting to conserve what is. Now, what is, particularly now that we're in our new normal or our next normal, conserving what is, is not okay because that's probably what got us to the stage that we're in right now where everything is now unpredictable. Okay, so you're saying that, or I think what you say, please tell me if I've interpreted correctly, that these feelings that we're experiencing now, some of them are a result of huge ongoing dysfunction, I mean, all around us or whatever, where there's a kind of build-up of an emotion that might be fear or even shame, but then gets triggered and manifests as anger. Where the original thing might not have been anger, that might have been feelings of the other kinds of feelings but sometimes people say that anger is often the second thing that people feel manifests in the behavior but fear and hurt and sadness if you go right to the root of it might be the first so your comment about that anger is the one fear that will break through our numbness so if we've numbed our emotions it takes something as potent as anger to break through 
So we may feel it as anger or label it as anger when it could be fear or hurt or when we hurt, we need to be self-protective and it can emerge as anger in terms of just leave me alone, I've had enough. But it's because I'm so desperately vulnerable in my hurt state. So we often call something anger when we're not aware of the range of our emotions. We call something anger when it could be desperately afraid or otherwise I'm feeling so hurt, I'm immobilized by it or shameful. Could that not be, I mean, you spokesman for gender equality and women's issues. Do you see a difference in the expression of some of the feelings? Because, you know, anger is definitely seen, the expression of anger, the behavior associated is definitely seen as stronger and tougher and being on top. Whereas if the real feeling is fear and hurt and being vulnerable, it's labeled not only by outside people, but by yourself as weakness or vulnerability. So the real emotion might not be A, recognized by the person and B, even expressed. And, yes. that, and that, that anger is often felt manifest like that collectively when many times individuals are feeling denigrated, hurt, just misunderstood, scared, maybe even to the point of shame. But that doesn't get easily exposed or as easily exposed. No, and that's when we produce revolution, when it's happening in masses of people who are so hurt. And that's when you see a lot of destructive behavior because anger is destructive. Now, we don't go there as our first option. We go there as our last option which is why South Africa changed, that you had millions of people who were saying, we've had enough to the point where nothing matters anymore. Not even my own life matters. I'm prepared to die for this cause rather than live under those circumstances. So, Steve, we understand the dynamic of this. You know, what we need to talk about, let's say, sad, mad, glad, fear, and surprise, some people add surprise because it's in terms of some sort of shock. I don't know where guilt yes. comes into those five. I never really know. Where guilt, maybe it's a result of one of the others. You feel guilty. Guilt is actually, guilt is something that we learn. I often joke about guilt and worry are things that we call emotions, but they're actually called fake emotions because they're actually learned behaviors. And the example I often use is, we don't, when we, we are, if they're primal emotions, you feel them automatically. You don't need to learn them. So a baby can display anger. A baby can display fear, for example, because those are primal emotions. When we are, if we're guilt or worry, we need to learn. So I always say that we're, when we're sort of being birthed, we're not worried about what the, the damage we're doing to our mothers in being birthed. And once we've been born, we're not feeling guilty about how much damage we did to her physically on the way out. So those are things that we need to learn. I love that distinction. Love that distinction. And it's also <laughs> it also highlights the fact that we engender it into each other through this yes. process that we call socialization or civilization. Maybe it's good in a way to learn a bit about the difference between right and wrong because you've got to think about things for yourself. But sometimes yes. it does go over the top about the real intensity of shame because it's not to do with an action or so anything really about what you do it's more about who you are the shame is in who you are yes now i know that there's a wonderful writer and certainly a therapist who's well known these days called brene brown yes um she writes about the power of vulnerability and a lot about shame. And one of the things that strikes me in what she says is that empathy and shame cannot live together. So that empathy, and we can unpack that, actually is almost like kryptonite to shame. So if someone is feeling bad about themselves and you can engage with them in a very deep, understanding way that acknowledges them and acknowledges their feeling it actually does a huge amount vis-a-vis the kind of explosion if you like or the dissipation is a better word of the shape can you comment about that 
And I think that the, the work that's done with vulnerability is really important and particularly the work that she does with vulnerability because she's one of the few. And when we're feeling at our lowest ebb, that's when the not good enough, which is the, the shame, comes in. And there's also a lot of work that's being done in terms of self-compassion and which sounds like it might be surface and it might be that there's a twee or, but it's actually, it's really important in terms of learning self-compassion that just because I learned from parents who may have been very different from who I am, they may have been conservative, traditional, etc., and I might not be. So parents would, or society would try and shame me into conforming. So I learned I'm not good enough because of what I think, who I am, etc., Or maybe I didn't perform to the degree that my parents would have liked. So whatever the reason is that I learned to be shamed, uh, ashamed of me. But the shame is I'm not good enough. Guilt, remember, is I've done something bad. Shame is I am bad. So a lot of the, the self-compassion work is the same as empathy, but turned in on oneself is really important so that one can go, one can tell oneself using your rational again, that these people are different from me. I don't conform to that society. I don't particularly want to be part of that society. I will form my own tribe of people or my own connections of people that I do relate to and do belong because belonging is one of the most important human needs that we have is to belong somewhere. And that's why uh, cults can develop, for example, because they make me feel that I belong in that place. And these We'll trade belonging for many, 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 many other things. And we'll even trade it for our rationality that says, hang on a sec, there's something wrong here. I don't care, I belong. So when we talk about the nervous system and what makes us feel like we belong, what exactly what you're talking about with empathy, when we truly listen to somebody, listening is the most important means of validating one another. It's the same as the, the, the Zulu greeting is Saabona, I see you, rather than hi and how are, the, how are you, fine, is I'm not about I see you. The true I see you is part of the African culture then of Ubuntu. I recognize who you are and respect who you are. So when we're looking at, at shame, self-compassion, empathy, having people empathize with us and question us so that we can employ our rational brain is important in terms of how do I, is this true? No, it's not true that I'm not not good enough. I'm more than good enough in many different respects. There are things that I am happy to work on. So to put it into a more of a rational context that you can work with, run this overwhelming feeling of I'm ashamed, I'm just not good enough. So it's extremely powerful because, yes. you know, if you use the word, I mean, somebody the other day was making the distinction between knowledge and acknowledge and that, you know, you can have a lot of but really to feel, to, it's about being acknowledged. And that really means being heard properly, not heard with your ears, no, heard properly in the moment with all your senses fully receptive and acknowledged, acknowledged. Yes. And so I just think, you know, that what you've said, the power of that, if we could employ that, you know, in so many ways with ourselves to acknowledge yourself as you said and then yes. to acknowledge where some of these other messages come and then employ the rational brain to say they might not have been right they were just what was just fed into me and i've internalized them to my detriment in a way yes and that's like the social programming and which is what we touched on before, because boys and girls learned differently about their emotions. So boys learn that in terms of anger and aggression, that makes you strong, as you were saying, but females learn generally that that's not nice. So that we have to be nice and, and you must never be angry and you must never be, which means we've lost our power as women. If we can't be angry, we can't be self-protective which meant we then needed to cleave to a male, so-called, for that protection, where it was acceptable for the man to be angry rather than for the woman to be angry. Look at very powerful women leaders 
they're called evil, they're called bitches, they're called, as very powerful male leaders are called strong and assertive, just the different ways that we relate to people are part of this different gendering of emotion. If I'm angry, I'm angry for a reason, because I feel like whatever's happening is making me feel like I'm losing my power. Sure. So Steph, if we go back to what we said, and then I would love you just to go through, because what we've said already is there's awareness, there's recognition of the feeling, there's some sort of need to own those feelings, there's the switching into the rational brain to take the control, you know, as you've been talking about, and um, there are a whole lot of other criteria of emotional intelligence that I'd like you to talk about. But to kind of talk to this, do you think that these kind of things are as binary as we put across? So for instance, let's just say you don't have to be neither submissive or aggressive. If you have a sense of your own personal entitlement, very much a sense of you are entitled to your feelings or whatever. Does that not then enable you to say, I don't have to get angry or throw my toys. I can be assertive. I can be quietly but strongly assertive. And from the other point, that's for women, and from the other point of view for men, you know, whatever, it doesn't mean that I have to be submissive. I can still say that my emotions count, so do yours. They don't have to be submissive. They can be assertive too without being seen. I mean, it's a whole cultural, which I think we're on the path and have been for a while, but a whole re-education of what it means. And, and I think the more successful we are with this, hopefully we can make a dent into this gender-based violence. That yes. All over the and I very strongly agree with you that it's not about we are binary, it's about society being binary. So when women overstep the mark, they get uh, socially bullied, I would call it, into getting get back in your box. So I, all of us, there's a range of behaviors that men and women display that are called by society or our upbringing. This is so-called ladylike, as it were. I don't know what that means <laughs> in terms of my mother would know, but I don't know what that uh, means. <laughs> and, and then there's that very, the, the strong kind of he-man behavior of the, when we were growing up, the, the male that was the strong sportsman, the rugby player would have been called the jock. Now, obviously that's all changed because the, the men that are making in this world are the nerds, so, which would have been something that was totally unacceptable when we were growing up. That sort of nerdy person who was the intellectual male would have been totally shunned by society as not being normal as it were so things are changing but women have for a very long time been talking about the issue of gender-based violence we can't solve it and only men can solve the issue of gender-based violence because it comes from male shame male insecurity male vulnerability and when men can go okay i'm feeling vulnerable and it's okay remember what Stephen Paul just talked about when my nervous system feels overwhelmed, it translates into behavior. And so when my nervous system is overwhelmed by my own vulnerability, I might translate that into behavior where I strike out and hit you and kill you, which is what's happening. So we need to get men, and there's, there's a big movement currently of men to start working on this gender-based violence because we are the victims as women. We can say to men, you need to sort your brothers out because, but we can't solve it for you. <laughs> that we as the victims, it's the same as only we white people can solve the issues to do with racism because we created it. Having black people say that, you know, you need to do something. Yes, we do. So it's who takes responsibility for what we have created that we think is normal in society, that is everything but normal. So with the societal change and that with a, a female empowerment, for example, and no one handed it to us, we took it. 
And we took it at great risks to ourselves and great social judgment. And it's what you were saying. We've got to learn as women and strong women that what other people think of us is none of our business because that's the only way we can sustain being change agents is managing our own emotions around going against what looks like social norms to address the issues of the big structural or systemic problems we have in our society. Sure. You were talking about this right in the beginning when you mentioned Ubuntu, that it's an interactive thing, that we are who we are because of who you are. And we, I mean, it doesn't mean don't take responsibility. In fact, just the opposite. It just means yes. that you're wired for connection. And it means that you um, all affect each other very, very much. I heard a lovely extract of a speech the other day, I just want to mention it, by Michelle Obama, who spoke about the fact that she didn't recognize these differences because of the way she was treated when she was growing up, by her brothers and by her uncles and by her father and so on. And then she ended that little snippet by saying, of course I was going to marry someone who was at least my equal. It wasn't even a question. <laughs> you know, and she spoke about it in terms of the messages about herself that she had internalized you know, um, which was powerful. So, Steph, if you could just say the skills criteria of emotional intelligence, a lot of people write about it differently. They write about it as self-management. They write about it as intra and inter, interpersonal yes. Sometimes people talk about a flexibility and adaptability or self-responsibility or stress management. If you could say what you think the main skills are that we've got to address and learn, especially going through this time. We've spoken yes. about emotional self-management. I think that something that I, I often talk about when I'm training and or coaching people is the only thing that we can rely on is our authentic selves. And that's where the data is coming from, is our authentic selves. And it's in being our authentic selves that we then show a different face to the world and allow the world to show their own face back at us. So it's that allow that being vulnerable or allowing oneself to be vulnerable because that's where your authentic self lives. All of the rest is the defense mechanisms and the kind of concrete statues we put around ourselves so that we look like we're doing things right in the world when in fact we're, we're doing things very wrong by ourselves. And in, in terms of we either please ourselves or we please other people. And we decide in each, almost each moment, what are we going to do? Am I going to sacrifice myself for this round? Or am I going to actually put myself first for this round? And if you keep sacrificing yourself and compromise, 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 then you will land up in depression because that's because you've given up on your authentic self. So that's got to be the key of it. But there are, very, there are ways that that gets manifest and that you see it. And yes. uh, gosh, we could talk about this for, for a very long time. I just want to get what a lot of people write about, like adaptability and flexibility, they say, they, let's put it, is a sign of very high emotional intelligence. In other words, often people who are really good planners, who need certainty and predictability, get very, very thrown in times of uncertainty. Yeah. So a real skill is to be able to kind of adapt in functional ways, like this word that is everywhere now, pivot, pivot. If I have yes, pivot, yes, yes, <laughs> me too. You know, I just have my own image of what pivoting is, but everyone is pivoting <laughs> like on tiptoe. So it's about adaptation. Is that an area of emotional intelligence? It, it's an area of emotional intelligence in that we are a lot more adaptable as human beings than we give ourselves credit for. We've learned to be inflexible. So we've learned to be rigid. We've learned all of those things. Think of our ancestors. If things changed, which they did all the time, climate change, weather changes, you'd have to pack up every single piece of everything that you own, including ancient grannies who might have been 40 at a time, or newborn babies, that, and move. 
And human beings have always been adaptable. It's this world that's created the illusion that everything is predictable. So we've become more and more rigid. When we're being our authentic selves, we are naturally adaptable. We can look at the situation and go, okay, this is happening now. COVID is happening now. Lockdown is happening now. My freedom has been taken away for, for if we're in lockdown. So what can I do about it? Ah, I can start thinking in terms of using my rational brain. Instead of going, ain't it so awful and getting involved in all the conspiracy theories to try and explain what's going on, we can go, okay, what are the opportunities? How can I create meaning? And it depends on where we choose to look as to where we'll find answers that make us feel comfortable. So the whole reason that we have a brain and a nervous system is about keeping us safe as we navigate through this planet. When things like this happen, we don't feel safe. We're not an at risk. If we've got comfortable homes, enough food, etc., we are not at risk currently. So it's getting in touch with our authentic nature and because that's where we find our adaptability. When I'm operating from my only my thinking mind rather than paying attention to my emotions, my vulnerability, the full range of emotions, then I try and portray a very rigid image. And that's where we run into trouble with ourselves. Steph, you just said something that I have to ask you because I often feel stuck when people refer to it with me, you know, I mean, towards the beginning, often people would say, well, look, this virus doesn't discriminate. And that serves as a connection. We all in this together. People are stepping up in the most yes. amazing ways, being a member of the race, showing compassion, you know, um, in an unprecedented way. But in fact, I mean, the reality in this country, as I've often said, we, we are very much in the same storm. That's not to say I don't think there's anybody, whatever your circumstances, who aren't affected at all. We may be affected differently. So we are in the same storm, but we're not really in the same boat in terms of our circumstances. Yes. And so often, you know, we're very diverse. And I think that this time has acted as an incubator, almost a magnifying glass, to highlight some personality characteristics, relationship issues, and in fact, societal divisiveness. So, you know, we talking like this, but I mean, is there anything, and there may not be, but I'm just asking you, what do you say to people who really act kind of saying, look, my issue now is that I'm, I've lost my job and we're battling to put food on the table. Yes. Um, and that is such a reality now. I'd love to know how you would have, other than being empathic, which I think is powerful in itself, is being connecting and empathic, or other than helping them address places that might be able to help, maybe even financially. How do you respond to that? I think that that certainly is the reality. And for those of us that do have, that if we want to just calm the desperation that we feel about what we're seeing around us, is every day if you can do something that will make a difference just to one other person's life. Now, if we don't have, for example, so we don't have the means to buy somebody food or give them food uh, who is in need, what can we do to ease somebody else's pain today? And if we can do something, even if, as you say, that is just listening to other people, talking to them about what gives their life meaning. Because when we're in desperate circumstances, if we start to look at what is it that gives my life real meaning, and then I can start following that. If I've lost my job, how can I, I hate to use the word, and I'm not going to use the word, that P pivot word, <laughs> or redirect my energies into what is it that I'd really like to do? And is there opportunity to do that right now? Because a lot of the time we've been talking to people about AI and how AI was going to take over their jobs, etc. None of us or not too many of us predicted this. And suddenly we plunged into a situation where there are many, many jobs are being lost. Now those jobs may have been jobs that often 
the people hated doing, they hated going to work. So what is the current opportunity? Now, it may not be something that you could go out and earn money from tomorrow, or it may be. You may love baking bread, for example. So go around and find who can you sell bread to right now, if that is something that you can do. Or it may take a little bit more planning. So how, what help do you need in the interim? So we plunged into, COVID has plunged us into something where life stopped from back within six months stopped being predictable. And it's the unpredictability that people are battling with. And if we can just focus on what is it that gives my life meaning, our nervous system starts to respond very differently to that. And that often requires collaboration. What we've been seeing in terms of, of capitalist business is the, the fight, flight, fear, anger, all of that that comes with competing with one another. And competing with one another is the opposite of Ubuntu. So how do we redirect how we've been programmed, as certainly as Westerners, to look at competition is everything. If I can just be better than you, then I can actually get my way in this world, which means putting other people down, all the corporate politics, all of those bad habits in terms of the snakes in suits rise to the top in, often with leadership. It's where we have people like Donald Trump at the moment in lead, very powerful leadership positions. So all of the, the world, we need to start looking differently at the world. When I can look at what gives my life meaning, everybody else is doing the same thing. We're starting automatically to look at humanity in a different way. So what can I do today that makes a difference? Because that will make me feel better under these difficult conditions of lockdown or COVID. It's absolutely beautiful. And thank you, Steph. Thank you very, very much. I think that it's really... It's a very abundant, very abundant and inclusive way of thinking. And what it says at its core is I am better if I make a difference in you. I want to be make a difference in your life and then I make a difference in my own life. As I'm listening to you, what you're really saying is that the line between giving and receiving is artificial. It's very, very blurred and they mingle together. And that's what we have to absolutely focus on now. I just want to thank you so, so much for for what you do, the wisdom that you bring to all of this. And Steph, you are, I mean, you spoke about authenticity. You absolutely <laughs> do. I walk your talk. You know, this that you're talking about, I know that you live every single day. And that it's contagious, you know. And what do you want people to pick up from you? <laughs> Not without what kind of healthy, it's not a virus, health and way of being do you want to be known for? And how can you make that contagious? And you have. So I just want to thank you so, so much for your time and your expertise. Steph. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dari. You do exactly the same yourself and you've been working tirelessly to make a difference your whole life that I know of. And so thank you. And I really appreciate this opportunity to be part of that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.